I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Pucci Keenan. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We're delighted to have Peachy in today, filling in for Inez. We have for you, as usual, a wide-ranging diversity of topics. So I will lead us off with a newsy topic talking about the collapse of the Hunter Biden plea deal last week. Obviously, we had Devin Archer testify in in a closed-door hearing earlier this week as well, so a lot going on on that front. Then we will toss it over to Ben for an update on the so-called Biden Bucks all-of-government voting scheme. Ben will fill us in on the juicy details of that particular saga. Then Emily will talk about class lines emerging within the Republican Party electorate. Not exactly a a new theme, but becoming ever more prominent and probably ever more important to discuss and analyze. So I'm looking forward to that segment very much. And then Peachy will close us out by talking about our high school boys trending conservative. Well, you might think not, but perhaps the answer is actually yes. We'll find out a little later, I suppose. So without further ado, let's kick us off here. So I will take that prerogative and talk about the collapse of the Hunter Biden plea deal. So if you recall, Last month, or I guess it was maybe a month and a half ago or so, I can't remember the exact date, there was an announcement that a plea deal had been reached in what was now a five or five and a half-ish year-long investigation into Hunter Biden's various legal troubles over the years. It was always a little hard, at least in my mind, to kind of separate the actual formal DOJ investigation into this, which was overseen by the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, who, as the media has never been remiss to remind us, is is a holdover from Donald Trump. That's been a, a kind of a favorite tactic of of the corporate media, of the regime-approved media, to to try to indicate that this is all kosher and above board because it is a Trump prosecutor who has, who has been overseeing this. It's always been a little hard for me to kind of uh, disentangle in my mind the DOJ investigation from the congressional probes, which obviously have really kicked up in earnest earlier this year after Republicans narrowly retook the House thinking here of Congressman Comer from Kentucky and on the Oversight Committee and, and folks like that. So anyway, a month and a half ago or so, whenever it exactly was, you had this plea deal that, that was announced. And basically anyone and their mother who looked at this deal immediately acknowledged that this was not a standard plea bargain deal. Um, for starters, uh, Hunter Biden would effectively plead – he would plead guilty to, to tax charges for not paying millions of dollars in income tax – And in exchange for that, he would serve two to three years probation, basically just a slap on the wrist. He would serve zero jail time whatsoever. And here is a particularly unusual aspect of this plea bargain deal is that they purported to agree to, in exchange for pleading guilty to the tax violation for which, again, he would serve zero zero jail time. Hunter Biden would also have a separate gun charge where because of his own idiocy, where he openly admitted to being a a crack cocaine addict around the time that he purchased a federal firearm, he committed a gun offense because anyone who has purchased a firearm can tell you that you have to attest that you are not on any kind of drugs or anything like that at the time of a purchase. So the plea bargain or the plea deal purported to get him off scot-free on the gun charge, and they would put, they said they would effectively just erase it, take out an eraser from a pencil and just, just totally blot it out of the record. Um, so unusual for a few reasons, definitely a sweetheart deal. But nonetheless, um, this thing has, you know, there's been lots of whistleblowers here. 
And we think that this was, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that this was going to be kind of just a go into court and get a rubber stamped by the judge sort of situation. Again, because it's Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's been involved probably in a cover up, Merrick Garland. That's what the whistleblower has been talking about. And suffice it to say, that's not what happened. Um, I was very caught off guard by this personally, actually. I did a TV hit um, for, for TBN. I think the night before Hunter Biden went to court for the plea deal, and I basically said, yeah, I mean, they should look into it, but I predict they won't. And I, I was wrong. I think I think many people were wrong, and we were pleasantly surprised that we were wrong, that the, that the trial judge in this case, a Trump nominee by the name of Mary Ellen Norica, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, she was the district court judge there in Delaware who really did apply fairly serious scrutiny to this plea deal and asked – questions that uh, many other judges wouldn't have seen fit to ask, such as kind of grilling as to the exact nature of what I just roughly described, which is this very bizarre arrangement where you kind of plead guilty to the tax charge and you're going to get Scott off free on the gun charge. She also asked a, what should be a very standard question that the lawyers should have been on the same page on, which is, does this foreclose any additional prosecution when it comes to FARA or when it comes to any other kind of kind of foreign business dealings pertaining to Burisma or any other things that Hunter Biden might have been doing shady overseas? Because God knows there's been a lot of that. And the defense team basically for, for Hunter Biden said, yes, this does foreclose additional prosecutions, uh, e.g. FARA, and the prosecution said no. So uh, effectively, they had a plea deal that parties purported to sign on paper, but it wasn't much of a plea deal. And the judge basically said, uh, take 30 days, get back to us with a real plea deal. And Hunter Biden actually ended up pleading not guilty uh, until, at least unless and until they get this new plea deal. So all, all of that is happening within the broader context, of course, of what I already mentioned, which is Devin Archer testified behind this closed door committee in the Congress earlier this week. You have kind of intense scrutiny being applied by many in the House Republican and Senate Republican fold, actually. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is talking about possibly filing articles of, of impeachment, which uh, is, is bolder than I think many of us have come to expect for an establishment Republican like Kevin McCarthy. You've seen, uh, you know, speaking of institutionalists, you've seen, you've seen Chuck Grassley in the Senate, who's turning 90 years old this September, who released a more lightly redacted version of this FBI, FBI form FD-1023 that shows these transactions and the phone calls from Mikola Zlochevsky of Burisma. So Republicans are starting to kind of, I think, smell some blood here. They're starting to smell some blood in the water. The question, obviously, and this is kind of where I turn it over to you guys. The question is, what comes next? Um, what comes next, I think, both in terms of the plea deal, what comes next in terms of um, congressional Republicans investigation? And uh, are you optimistic? Are you white-pilled, I guess, by the judge's scrutiny and ultimate rejection for now of this plea deal in court? I guess I would say on Hunter, I'm not really white pilled at all because I still think it's been like the media, which is less and less powerful every single day, is still covering this up to a, an unbelievable degree. Um, and, and that makes it really difficult at the end of the day for Republicans to penetrate the sort of broad conversation about the Bidens in a super meaningful way. Now, whether Hunter Biden actually faces more serious uh, prosecution and a more serious and uh, fair justice is meted out in his case, I actually think you're right, Josh. I think that's there, there's momentum in that direction, um, despite the odds, <laughs> despite the the early signals. Um, but uh, of course, that only goes so far if you are not 
ashamed if there if you have no shame and i still see no shame from the biden family or any of the democrats uh, although they did just part ways with mark elias who has been involved in all kinds of different shameful activities when it comes to electioneering so maybe it, maybe there are signs that that's going in the right direction too but there just seems to be absolutely no shame in flagrantly violating things like FARA, which is a, a world war ii era law that makes sure that we're not uh you know being subjected to secret propaganda campaigns from foreign countries. Uh, this should be embarrassing for people to be breaking these laws, to be engaged in these types of campaigns, whether it's with Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Mexico, you can run the list of Hunter Biden's clients. Uh, and, and that's what I think really continues to worry me at the end of the day. So, um, you know, there are a couple aspects to, I think, the plea deal that are worth honing in on. First, what became clear is that under the most basic questioning from the judge, the plea deal fell apart multiple times. If you look to the transcript of the hearing, you see the words unprecedented, that the prosecutors can't conjure up any sort of analogous example of an agreement like these agreements uh, put forth in court. And what it shows you is that, yes, it validates the idea that this was a sham set of agreements. And also that this is the poisonous fruit of what, by the whistleblower's accounts, is a poisonous, quote unquote, investigation into Hunter Biden, which is to say a non-investigation into Hunter Biden and also by extension, Joe Biden, because as the whistleblowers show, the prosecutors told the investigators, essentially, you have to lay off any leads that point to Joe Biden setting aside the fact that Hunter Biden has zero business whatsoever and the Biden family has zero business whatsoever if it's not for Joe Biden's office. And that is the elephant in the room in basically all the reporting about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, what did Joe know, when did he know it, et cetera. This business does not exist without Joe Biden. So what this looks like is that the plea deal and the quote unquote investigation were part of the cover up of Joe Biden's apparent corruption and compromise, which will be the basis of any potential impeachment inquiry that goes forward. And I think the merits to that, as I wrote about in the New York Post, are that what, what could be a higher potential crime and misdemeanor than actions that point towards a couple of the only offenses listed out in the Constitution when it comes to impeachable offenses of treason and bribery. It's not to say that Joe Biden necessarily committed treason or necessarily took a bribe, although we obviously have credible a credible allegation of him taking a bribe but what more do you need to go about deserving meriting full investigation using all of congressional uh, probatory powers so that's one aspect also just note on the plea agreement a couple of things that i don't think got enough attention the pretrial diversion agreement which is where this whole global immunity get out of jail free card was hidden uh, which the judge quickly honed in on and showed to be a sham and pretty much unprecedented. If you actually go in and you look at the DOJ guidelines about getting this pretrial diversion agreement, they list what would make one ineligible for such an agreement. Just two of those points. One, being accused of an offense involving brandishing or use of a firearm or other deadly weapon. Well, this is literally on a firearm related charge. Another one, a public official or former public official accused of an offense arising out of an alleged violation of public trust. Now, Hunter Biden is not a public official, obviously. He has a nexus to one. But the third one, and this is probably the most important, accused of an offense related to national security, including terrorism offenses or foreign affairs. That is FARA. So you're at least in the ballpark in a few of the six items listed that would make you ineligible for a pretrial diversion agreement. Hunter Biden got that. This is a sham from start to finish. And the question is, 
to get that pretrial diversion agreement, if you violate any of these principles, you have to go to, I believe, the assistant deputy attorney general's office. Uh, and that would be Lisa Monaco's office. So did the DOJ go there? And it's also just worth noting that the DOJ and Hunter Biden's lawyers appear to be completely on the same side here in this hearing right up until the point that it blew up. And I think that's very telling as well. I think I just have a minute here, but I just want to say I love the plea agreement because if I ever have a case or a plea agreement or like over an unpaid parking ticket, I'm going to make sure that my lawyer is sneaky enough to get in anything else illegal I've ever done. Murder charges, whatever it is, embezzlement. We're just going to slide that right in there and I'll get off. I mean, no one is above the law except you're, except if you're a Democrat. Yeah, that that is definitely the way that it increasingly seems and indeed is. But uh, Ben, let's kick it back to you to talk about Biden bucks. Yeah, so a little bit of a contrarian piece here, but I did this investigative piece for Real Clear Investigations on kind of the status of things about an executive order that has been shrouded in mystery, but I thought was worth paying attention to going into 2024 because you know, there's one element of the focus on the horse race going into 2024 of, you know, where are all these people jockeying for position and, and where are the polls, et cetera. But another aspect that we've talked about before is how do you, why do you think this election is going to go any di differently than the 2020 election, given the fact that all of these election integrity eviscerating laws or practices in many instances remain on the books? Uh, you can bet that Democrats will only be perfecting and building upon what they did in 2020 to ensure that the election is, quote unquote, fortified going into 2024. And one aspect, if you look at the litany of efforts that Democrats engaged in last time was Zuckerbucks, you know, the private funding of public election administration, which saw all of these progressive aligned groups working with election administrators and their offices, particularly in areas with a high propensity for Democrat turnout uh, and in swing districts and swing states to effectively help drive that turnout, or at least that's what's alleged. And the Biden administration very early on put out this executive order on, quote unquote, promoting access to voting. And they frame this as sort of a civil rights oriented response to making sure that people take advantage of the franchise in the face of Jim Crow or Jim Eagle 2.0, uh, apparent you know voter intimidation, voter suppression tactics from the evil right wingers in state legislators. And so what this executive order did, among other things, was it tasked every single federal agency, more than 600 agencies, with devising these strategic plans to register and mobilize voters to increase, quote unquote, voter participation. In addition, it called on those agencies to look at cooperating with and colluding with third-party non-governmental, so-called nonpartisan groups to aid in those efforts. And so this order was put out in 2021. There was some oversight placed on it, you know, at least publicly in terms of media scrutiny. Uh, and some Republican members of Congress threw up their hands. They said, first of all, this is encroaching upon the state's control over our elections, that you're putting executive agencies in a position of registering voters that oftentimes have no clue or no nexus whatsoever to actually the vote and getting people registered and such. And this was viewed as potentially an extension of Zuckerbucks to 
what's been called Biden bucks, because you're using taxpayer dollars to go about driving votes and potentially cooperating with these third party groups presented as nonpartisan, but oftentimes who have proven to be left wing. And if you look at actually the origin of the order, it appears that it was cribbed from something put out by Deimos, which is a progressive think tank. And but but all that said, the administration has never put out the strategic plans that each of these agencies were tasked with producing and submitting to the White House and then implementing and executing. And so there have been several efforts among outside groups like America First Legal and the Foundation for Government Accountability who put, put out FOIA requests to try to find these strategic plans uh, and then are litigating against them. And the litigation has been met with kind of mixed responses from judges. There have been some documents that have been produced around the strategic plans, but the administration is hiding them. And so what I wanted to do was look at kind of what is the status of oversight, including in Congress. And members of Congress have put out any number of letters asking for the agencies and for the administration to produce these plans and to provide answers about, you know, what third party groups are you cooperating with? And what does that cooperation actually look like? Essentially to no avail. And there have been sort of a drip drip of agencies putting out little documents indicating some of the things that they're doing to try to drive a voter participation and mobilization, but nothing that is comprehensive. Why is this so significant you know, beyond obviously the constitutional issues, the legal issues, and the political taint to this order? Well, Demos itself has said that this order, if fully implemented, if all of these agencies are working to register and mobilize voters, could lead to three and a half million new or modified voter registrations annually. Three and a half million. And you know that in the last couple of elections, we're talking about thousands of votes within a handful of states that have swung presidential elections. So you can imagine the magnitude of this effort. And so what I found is that Republicans in this Congress have put forth legislation that would actually defund and essentially nullify this executive order in toto. Uh, it's unclear whether any legislation like that could actually pass in the Senate. Um, the House, there does seem to be certainly momentum behind it, particularly this recently passed out of committee uh, ACE Act, American Confidence in Elections Act. But all that said, it does not appear that we're going to get to see these strategic plans or know what the Biden, every single executive agency is doing under the Biden administration's command to implement this order going into 2024. So one person at the Foundation for Government Accountability, Stuart Whitson, put out a piece at The Federalist talking about the fact that it's incumbent upon Congress to use their subpoena powers to question officials, to collect documents so that state attorneys general can actually file suit and get an injunction against the Biden administration to halt this executive order going into 2024. But I think there's an issue that's not really being talked about. It's potentially incredibly meaningful and significant going into 2024. And that was why I felt it merited shining a light on it. So I guess the question would be, what do you all think that Congress should do about this? Uh, is this potentially as big an issue uh, as I think it is? Uh, or is there something else that we should be focusing uh, our efforts and attention on when it comes to election integrity in 2024? I, I mean, I guess when it comes to election integrity, Ben, what I come back to is that infamous Time magazine piece uh, written in 2020, where they were kind of just openly bragging about the fact that they were doing all of this out in the open, and they knew that no one on the other side was going to stop it. And 
you know, so the subpoena power is a, is a, is a, is a powerful tool. Um, the impeachment power is a more powerful tool. I mean, Congress only has so many tools. It's basically like the power of the purse, subpoena, impeachment, um, maybe, and obviously just like passing laws. I mean, kind of just like, like the lawmaking prerogative of Congress. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, this is kind of a sprawling national grassroots issue for the right and, and for Republicans in general. And subpoenaing to kind of get to the bottom of various Biden administration scandals, whether real or perceived, is ultimately only a tiny tip of the iceberg. As we've discussed on this show, and I think many of us have discussed as well in our individual capacities off this show, I, I, I have little to no reason for believing that the Republican Party has has learned, let alone actually acted upon or implemented many or any of the lessons that it should have learned after the voting irregularity, shall we say, in 2020, whether it's Zucker bucks, Biden bucks, uh, obviously kind of ballot harvesting mail and but all this stuff. Right. So um, I, I don't know. This is one issue where I just continue to be, unfortunately, quite quite blackpilled on. But sure, I mean, you know, when it comes to kind of the use of, of, of the congressional tool set, when it comes to this, um, this scandal that you've shined a spotlight on, among others, um, you know, I think the subpoena power is definitely a start. I just think that it's kind of wholly insufficient for the, the, the problem that we on the right are currently facing. Go ahead, just, okay, I'll just jump in here. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a much larger issue. Um, you know, the Zuckerbucks thing is too small. I, I did a deep dive on the big family arts and culture foundations in this country, like the MacArthur Foundation, Carnegie, all Open Society, all these big, you know, multi-billion dollar um, endowments. And I discovered to my surprise that a huge, a huge amount of their resources is devoted to election integrity and to going into red states, um, to shore up their elections, to fortify, to it's really just ballot harvesting. So we have this, these unregulated, literally hundreds of millions of dollars being being poured into at the precinct level to uh, you know increase the chances that um, Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom will win in 2024. And the right, I mean, it has no answer to that. We have there's I don't see anything uh, equivalent on the right. Um, and I, I just think that, yes, uh, for 2024, it really doesn't really matter in the end. I think there's no way unless there's some, you know, the red red mirage yet again, um, we're going to potentially see part two of that. I just don't know how we can overcome that without our own resources and our own foundations, which I just don't see right now. And an interesting thing to keep in mind, re-red mirage, is that a lot of COVID regulations are staying with us in particular states. So voting laws that were changed because of COVID, um, as Molly Hemingway documented in Rigged, uh, didn't go away in many cases. And so if it seems like suddenly there's an edge uh, for Democrats, you know, they've this is a long game for them. The ballot harvesting is a long game for them. And I would say to their credit, I mean, I wish we had better election integrity in this country. I wish we all voted on one day, uh, but we don't. And we haven't for a really long time. It did increase after COVID. There's no question about it. And if it feels like there was an edge that Democrats had in the, the last election, maybe even the last 
two elections, of course. Um, I, I think that there very clearly was, and it's because, you know, like what happened in Pennsylvania and other states, laws were changed in order to accommodate the pandemic and they're never going away. Um, and, and that's just the fact of the matter. So I agree with everyone. It just doesn't seem like the Republican Party is quite catching up. You know, you, you hear Ronna McDaniel talk a, a good game uh, in some respect about what they're doing. You've seen some money, some groups go to different places, uh, but it's just, it, it's still just quite not not quite there uh, in the way that it has to because it's such a, it, it has to parallel a vast operation that has years and years of a head start. Uh, ben, did you have anything else to say before I uh, take over? All right, take it I'll, home. I'll seize the microphone. Um, I want to talk about this really fascinating New York Times poll, uh, and you know, again, it's a New York Times poll. It's New York Times Siena. It came out this week, so take that for what it's worth. Um, they did poll 800 plus Republican voters. The margin of error was about 3%. I think it was plus or minus 2.9% on this. Um, but they basically break the Republican electorate into three different groups. So they have the MAGA base that they put around 37%. They have persuadable voters that they put around 37%. And then they have voters who are not open to Trump, which they put around 25%. I typically see these kinds of divisions as gimmicks and really don't like them because you're sort of trying to draw hard lines around groups that uh, it's just so hard to do that when you're asking people questions over the telephone and like actually trying to gauge that enough to put hard lines around it. But I actually do think this poll does a good job because it's a pretty basic dividing line. Uh, are you hardcore Trump? Then you go in the MAGA base. It's pretty obvious to gauge someone's commitment to Donald Trump. And there are a whole lot of voters in the Republican Party. I typically put it around 30%, but 37% doesn't surprise me that uh, want Donald Trump to be president and don't trust anybody else. Uh, if, if you want an anti-establishment politician, it doesn't matter how well, for instance, uh, Ron DeSantis does that or Vivek Ramaswamy or whatever. It doesn't matter how well they do that. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, as, as Josh has pointed out, has been involved with uh, open society and World Economic Forum. Him. You can pretty easily tie him to the establishment. Ron DeSantis is a literal politician. Uh, so for a certain sect of voters, that's just never going to fly. Persuadable voters also at 37%, people who would be open to Trump, open to DeSantis, open to somebody else. And then that 25% that is just not open to Trump. What I found interesting about this New York Times analysis is that they asked some questions that are really good gauge and in their cross tabs, um, them up by education and income, which is always a good barometer for class. It's what social scientists use to determine class analysis. So if you look at the crosstabs, um, the group that says America is in danger of failing the least, so the group that is least worried about America being in danger of failing is the not open to Trump demo, you'll be shocked to learn, um, and also the most wealthy. So they they earn a, a larger percent of them by far earn $100,000 a year or more. And a larger percent of them uh, by far, by far have a college degree. Just 26% of the mega, mega base has a college degree. And just 30% of the mega base earns $100,000 a year or more. 80% of the MAGA base rightfully says America is in danger of failing. So this has all kinds of implications for the presidential election. I think this is really helpful for various campaigns to kind of understand where people are falling on these questions, uh, particularly the, the DeSantis campaign. They rolled out an economic agenda this week, which was pretty interesting. Um, and you know, you, you're just looking here at 
what that message might be in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, um, at different events in different uh, formats, whether it's a debate, whether it's um, you know radio interviews. How are you taking this message to people who who fall in different demos? I think it's a good thing for Donald Trump himself to think about because he gets tied up in uh, petty squabbles more and more. Uh, I, you know, it's it's always been at a, a high, amusingly high level. I'll concede, uh, but it doesn't even seem like going into the stratosphere and, you know, working people are suffering and uh, need politicians to uh, show some concern and some, uh, you know, ability to, or willingness to address those problems seriously. So I just think it's really, really worth uh, pondering how stratified the Republican base is when it comes to class. Um, A lot of times it's just so Mm -hmm. simplified to, uh, pro-Trump or never Trump, but it's a whole lot different than that. There's a lot more nuance involved. It's not like every Republican voter who pulled the lever for Donald Trump in 2020 is you know, someone who would go to a rally, um, somebody who wears a MAGA hat. There are a whole lot of you know reluctant Trump voters or you know just normal Trump voters, not super happy about the choice, maybe wish it was somebody else, but are always 10 times out of 10 going to vote for him over a Democrat. Um, and then there are people who are like really, really, really interested in another option. And, uh, you know, from from that perspective, there's a lot, I think, to to glean uh, from a breakdown like this. So I'll toss it open to the group on that note. All right. Well, I guess I I mean, my take on this, Emily, is that it uh, this this shines a spotlight on a lot of things that we talked about for a long time. And I think it's important to kind of, um, you know, continue to, to focus on this and to flesh it out. The first thing that comes to mind is there is just a massive, massive divide. And it's something that we've known for years. We arguably knew it as early as kind of 08, 12. We definitely knew it by 2016. There was this massive yawning chasm between the interests of the median Republican primary voter, especially in the middle and working class and the donor class. And and this this chasm has probably only increased even since 2016. I mean, at the same time that so many donors, you know, are, are funding and I'm, I'm admittedly being kind of a, a little um, uncharitable and hyperbolic here, but at the same time that these donors are funding kind of, you know, these dorky roundtable bow tie seminars in DC to discuss the finer details of page 236 of the wealth of nations or kind of the magic of, of you know, Ricardio comparative advantage and I pencil and all of this, you know, free market laissez faire dorkery at the same time as that. You know, the median people that you're highlighting this poll are just trying to get by. That's it. They're just trying to get by. They frankly don't give a damn. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on the show, but they don't give a damn about kind of, you know, the various like super abstract theoretical dictates of, of this. They don't care about wearing your 37, 55 points, you know, font eight you know, a, a footnote three, where in your plan, you have some citation to some like dorky philosopher from 300 years ago, they are just trying to get by. They are just trying to get by with their, when the basic price of eggs, chicken in the supermarket, gasoline at the pump, the the basic things in life have been skyrocketing. We obviously had four decade high inflation reaching over 9% in the CPI in the middle of last summer, right around a year ago now. Binomics has has been a disaster no matter how many times the administration may try to to gaslight we the people to to the contrary. 
And, you know, when it comes to kind of these tangible economic policies, right, I mean, that probably above all else, arguably above a lot of kind of the culture, the culture war rhetorical posture really, at least in my perspective, probably is why Donald Trump was able to break through in 2016 that first time. Obviously, you can't you know, you can't divorce just the whole kind of force of his personality, universal name ID, but when it comes to the actual policies, he really probably was kind of his economic nationalism, populism, probably even more so, I would argue, than some of kind of the culture war stuff that really led him to break through. And to the extent that, you know, candidates in the year 2023 who are running for president in the Republican Party fail to understand that, I, I it's, it's just deeply disheartening. And, you know, real quick, I um, I, I I did review uh, not with like a fine tooth comb or anything, but I but but I took a, a, a couple of glances at Ron DeSantis's plan. Uh, I think they're calling it a declar declaration of American uh, a declaration of economic independence. Excuse me. And you know there is there is some kind of um, you know standard kind of Wall Street Journal editorial board s stuff. Now there's also some good stuff in there. I, I particularly liked how that ten point plan started. With uh, sub, you know, reshore supply chains, reshore manufacturing. That was the very first of the ten plans, which I thought was very encouraging. Um, I would look for more details, more kind of Michael Lind esque details on that front, because that is one theme that I think Trump brought to the foreground. That I'm just really, really, really hoping that other non-Trump candidates are able to kind of uh, follow through on the next few years. Well, I'm really in the minority here because I am one of those very few, you know, college educated, <laughs> Ivy League educated Trump voters, um, female, like how many of them are there like me in America? I'm not like other girls. Um, but but I, I think that that, yeah, some people are just have a knee jerk reaction to the personality. And to some people, the personality is the reason they love Donald Trump. You know, it it does feel like it's him as a person, not just the policy, who can like be strong enough to get things done or to speak for them or whatever. And so it almost feels like no matter what policy any other GOP candidate puts out or how great, how well written it is or whatever, it's not going to capture the Trump base who just wants to hear it from Trump. So, you know, we're in sort of a dilemma because how do we, there's no way to win at all. I mean, we, we're barely going to win, even if every single potential GOP voter votes for the same person, we'll still barely maybe win um, based on the, all the fortification that we talked about. So how, how in the world can we win if everyone is so entrenched in their camps of like, I hate Trump, I love Trump, Trump only, never Trump, you know, and then sort of like this middle mushy mess of like, I don't know, whoever, <laughs> like, what is the, what is the way to kind of un, un, unite unite the right <laughs> without the without the uh the tor the tiki torches yeah so i think um yeah it's definitely a point well taken about you know among the elites the kind of everything is awesome cohort i guess uh, within the republican voter base that you know there's the aesthetic hatred of trump and then there's also the substantive hatred which is i guess the perception that he threatens their self-interest, uh, you know, of kind of the open borders and and all the rest of kind of the globalist elite kind of agenda that used to be, to a large extent, GOP orthodoxy, again, at least among uh, its elites. And then the other side of the coin, obviously, is, you know, they don't, they like Donald Trump's aesthetic. They like the fact that he, his policies would smash uh, the globalist elite orthodoxy. And they see themselves hated by that never Trump kind of cohort. 
and want someone who's going to defend them against it. And, you know, that has been kind of always the simplified explanation, uh, you know, in part for the Trump phenomenon and how there's been a reemergence of uh, a blue collar Republican base, whether or not the party squanders that huge captive faction, I think is to be determined. We'll see what happens, you know, eight, 12, 16, 20 years on from now. Uh, but I think it's very telling the the class breakdown and how that continues to um, sort of reveal itself and probably strengthen, I think, over time, that these very basic kind of kitchen table kind of issues uh, capture and resonate with tens of millions of Americans. And will the political elites and the donors for whom those Americans and their beliefs are anathema come around to it out of their political self-interest or instead continue to try to marginalize, alienate, and crush those tens of millions of Americans. Uh, that's sort of the one of the defining issues of our time. It's playing out within the Republican Party, but then it's also going to play out more broadly uh, across the nation. And we'll see one manifestation of it in this presidential election, but more telling might be two or three presidential elections down the road. All right, Peachy, over to you to tell us about those Oso-based teenage boys. <laughs> Yeah, there's a very interesting article I saw yesterday in The Hill. Um, high school boys are trending conservative, especially in light of the last week or so of exhaustive uh, Barbie versus Ken discourse that everyone on the right and left was um, having fun with. And so here we have in real life what is happening with there is a real Ken's versus Barbie dynamic growing among Gen Z, you know, Zoomer boys, especially high school seniors. Um, I happen to have two high school boys in my home, my two of my, my older sons. And I have remarked um, many times to friends and to my husband, like anecdotally, wow, these boys are really conservative. I don't do that much proselytizing or, you know, uh, uh, missionary work at home to like make them read my articles or anything. They're just sort of naturally have absorbed this without really me doing anything from whatever they're looking on on the internet or just their friends, uh, maybe being a Catholic helps. But in this article, it says that 12th grade boys have become overwhelmingly conservative. They're now nearly twice as likely to identify as conservative versus liberal, according to a respected federal survey of American youth. Um, nearly one quarter of high school seniors self-identify as conservative or very conservative um, compared to the 1970s when it was only 13%. And it's a striking shift. As re recently as the late 2000s, liberal boys occasionally outnumbered conservatives. Um, in the Carter era, it was basically equal between girls and boys. But the caveat is, unfortunately, girls are drifting further and further to the left. No surprise. Um, the share of 12th grade girls who identify as liberal rose from 19% 10 years ago to now it's 30%. Only 12% of girls now in high school seniors identify as conservative. So we have this, you know, the chart <laughs> goes like this. And it just keeps, it's going to keep going up. Like the boys are going to get more and more conservative as they hit college and, and encounter, you know, college age feminist women. <laughs> They're going to be even more blackpilled on them. And the women are just going to be reacting to these conservative guys. And are they going to be doubling down and getting more and more feminist, more and more liberal? And so, you know, my question is really, how does this sort of young battle of the sexes play out? I mean, we need to propagate the human species. And so we have a potential problem here with all these sort of base boys and these feminist liberal girls. Um, how do we get them to meet up 
and mate and court each other and reproduce and create babies. We have a big problem. This is what my book, Domestic Extremists, is really all about. And so my question is, will the boys successfully red pill these girls, or at least enough of them, to propagate the human species? Or will the women end up pink pilling these young guys? And that is the open question for the table. I'm I'm super excited to jump in here because I finally saw Barbie <laughs> and I, I, I wrote a pretty um, positive review of Barbie in the Federalist okay. just now, but I do think one of the big takeaways from it, it, like every joke in that movie is predicated on the idea that men and women are different. And that seems like a low bar. And I get they use the trans actor, although they don't actually acknowledge the trans actor as trans throughout the entire movie, but it, it feels like a low bar. But at the end of the day, if you're getting millions and millions of people to laugh at something that has fundamentally been lost in our society, to very dangerous effects. Uh, I say it's a good thing. I thought the movie was funny. I know a lot of people disagree, uh, but I do think that over and over again, it's asking you to laugh at the fact that like Ken takes over the Barbie dream house, spoiler alert, I guess, and they need to disinfect it afterwards. Like that's hilarious. Men are disgusting. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, I thought it was a little gratuitous in the male bashing department, but that said, um, at the end of the day, uh, this is also a spoiler. So please tune out if you are not looking for spoilers, but Barbie explicitly in her own words says she realizes that she's been taking Ken for granted and I think there's a, a cultural moment for women on the horizon especially with these numbers which by the way have an added uh, legitimacy because this is a survey that's been taken over time so you're seeing fluctuations to the same question with the same cohort and that's very meaningful um, so if you're you know skeptical of the numbers that's helpful in and of itself but um on the horizon, you see women uh, just on their way to a reckoning with this because women need men, uh, men need women, and you know both are going to have to hash that out. You know, at the end of the day, um, the, this is the bottom line: is that men and women need each other, and it, you know, it's scary to think of what Japan dealt with um, when technology came along and uh, allowed men to sort of isolate themselves online and with sex dolls, and the way that's um, absolutely accelerating technologically in the West. Um, with AI pornography and the works. So obviously there's some of that involved, but at the end of the day, um, men want to propagate the species. Women want to propagate the species. <laughs> um, so that gives me, there, there's my white pill, my pink pill. That said, um, I, I love that we're covering this because I really think there's going to be uh, a lot of pain um, involved in that reckoning and in the process. It's not going to be easy. We're going to see a lot of angst um, that's expressed um, you know, in, in different ways and tragic ways and painful ways. Uh, so it's by no means a good thing, um, although I'm optimistic about the outcome. Okay. So uh, I, I'm trying to figure out how the polling on this works. I mean, I'm not a demographer. I mean, this is, like, this is actually like, like an open question if one of you guys has an answer to this. I mean, I thought that Gen Z polling was like cartoonishly off to the left. So are current high schoolers below the actual age that demographers classify as Gen Z or are they a subcomponent? I, I actually, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if either of you guys um, have an answer to that. So I'm kind of just curious, like how the how, how the numbers crank out here. Um, but I, I mean, to Peachy's broader point, I mean, you know, I look, I, I, I also believe that, you know, one should typically if you know, I'm not gonna say always because that's painting with a very broad brush, but you should clearly typically try to build a family and to mate and and to 
propagate the species with people who are like-minded with with similar religious values if not identical religious values i would say um and and, and very similar or to bare minimum highly compatible political ideologies as well so you know i think that that, that these are very legitimate questions to ask but i i am also you know given just how draconian the polling has been for gen z's political preferences over the past few years it's hard to not hear the numbers that pg is reading and come away with a kind of a fundamental white pill and the the question I ask is is why I mean what what exactly has happened and you know I guess the place where my mind first goes having not given this a ton of thought admittedly is that there's just a visceral disgust I mean this is the, this is the time where where these kids hormones are raging obviously they're coming it's puberty it's adolescence they're 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 becoming men they're quite literally becoming men from boys. And that is a very vulnerable time of a young man's life. And around that time, when you were going through these these physiological, hormonal, developmental changes, and you have all of society, you know, wagging your finger and saying, screw you, you know, like what you are literally becoming, like this manly creature that you are becoming is wrong. You should suppress it and instead you consider calling yourself a woman, chopping off your genitalia or whatever. I mean, at the time that that is happening, yeah, I, maybe there is kind of like an actual broader visceral backlash. You know, I haven't got, done a deep dive in like the in like the cross tab polling or anything like that, but that's definitely where my instincts go. I and I think that that's I think that that's reason for optimism. I mean, and you know, when it comes to kind of the the teenage girls going the other direction, look, I mean, conservatives in America have had a, a an increasing gender gap for a long time now. There's been a, a lot of work done on this. It typically does not actually have much, if anything, to do with the abortion issue, contrary to what the left loves to say. It actually has more to do, based on the polling than I've seen, with economic issues. It kind of gets us back into the last segment. And I, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that if the Republican Party continues to embrace some of the more realist and nationalist themes and policies and moves away from kind of the more ideological abstractions of free market fundamentalism and whatnot. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that that gender gap could eventually narrow over time, although admittedly, it seems like it's not trickling down to the current uh, high school cohort, at least yet. Yeah, so like Josh, it would be interesting, it would be interesting to see you know, what it is that are the primary driving forces, whether self-ascribed or observed between the growing chasm. What is it that specifically among those poet is driving uh, women more liberal, however it's described? And by the way, that's an important point also. How do the individuals polled self-identify these terms, conservative and liberal? Um, but And then also for men, is it you know what we might assume that this is a sort of backlash to wokeism and being told that men are inherently evil or aggressors and toxic and that thus your response is going to kind of be to rebel against that and pick a political ideology that comports with the backlash towards that uh, or is it something else um, certainly questions that are interesting and worth exploring I, I can't help but also think that you know, we've talked about before, you know, kind of my overarching view of the trans agenda in part is it's not only about making people reject their own nature uh, with all the horrible knock on effects that ultimately has, but it's also about separating parents from their kids and breaking down the family unit as a way to break down society and ultimately capitalize on that for political gain. But it's the same thing, I think, with the growing chasm between the sexes. What is 
the left's kind of modus operandi, it's divide and conquer. And you know, what could be more a fundamental divide uh, in terms of if you wanted to destabilize and then exploit a society for your own ends, then first destroying the family, but then also pitting the sexes against each other to the extent you can even define them. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, you know, I kind of go back to that as this all looks like the residue of uh, the left's long march. Uh, it's a positive that men are trending in one direction. It's a very big negative that women are trending in the other direction. How this ultimately plays itself out over time, you know, like we've seen the trends of people get older, they get more conservative, but maybe that's breaking down. Will the same thing happen with the sexes? Uh, hard to know. But I, I think I agree that there's going to be a tumult and a serious reckoning as we work through these chasms in our society. Yeah, I guess just real quick. I mean, my final impression of this is that I, I, the reason that I'm more optimistic than pessimistic, even though there is this increasing chasm, is because there there has 100% been a concerted war on men, manliness, masculinity over the past few years. And the fact that the rising generation of boys seems to be sticking its middle finger and at least identifying with, with the movement that uh, that does not engage or at least engages considerably less in this war, I, I just find that, um, frankly, quite uh, quite inspiring, actually. Um, all right, so let's transition to final thoughts. Does anyone want to get us started? Seeing none, I will hop in with a moderator's uh, prerogative. Um, so I was reading a, an interesting um, uh, editor editorial from the Wall Street Journal, I guess notwithstanding my kind of cheeky comments directed at them a couple segments ago. Um, but they 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 shined a spotlight on the uh, debanking scandal that is that has engulfed Nigel Farage over in the UK. Um, Saurabh Amari wrote a column about this for Unheard a couple weeks ago as well. And I'm not sure if we discussed it on this show, but it, to me, debanking is one of the quintessential NACON issues because it kind of gets to the intersection of, of the public and the private and how we should kind of rethink our approaches to regulation and what counts as a state actor when it comes to constitutional interpretation, all this stuff. And long story short, what happened over in the UK, Nigel Farage was uh, was was banking with, with a bank called Coots, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, C-O-U-T-T-S. And he was promptly informed that he was no longer a customer, that the bank was no longer to allow him to park his assets there. And he immediately said, this is this is wrong. You, you, you are stripping me of my ability to bank with you simply because of my political beliefs. The company initially denied responsibility for that. And then subsequently, upon uh, more public pressure, it was revealed that, yeah, that's actually exactly why they did that. Um, they actually had some statements that made it to the to the public um, arena where top level executives were saying that Farage being a, a customer of Coots did not properly jibe with their self-conception as an inclusive organization. You know, all these typical kind of, you know, DEI buzzwords. It, it, the story basically ended up being exactly what Nigel Farage and many of us thought. Turns out that the CEO of Coots resigned in an attempt to save save face, as did the CEO of the parent company of, of Coots. But this is a, a continuing kind of roiling PR scandal over in the UK. It's obviously not at all dissimilar from what is happening here in the United States. Admittedly, it probably hasn't quite reached that level yet, but we have had any number of anecdotal data points when it comes to debanking over the past few years now. And 
you know, this is a recurring theme on this show. It's a very difficult public policy question. But I mean, I always come back to the idea that we should treat these banks basically the same way that we should treat the tech companies if they're acting in accordance with kind of enforcing a political orthodoxy. Um, there's no reason whatsoever, I think, to to shy away from common carrier regulation as kind of an overarching legal framework. I mean, at the end of the day, Banks in particular have been so heavily regulated in America, at least since the Great Depression and the FDR presidency, that I don't really see the harm in kind of adding some additional layer of regulation simply to preclude the further unraveling of America into a two-tier society. So I'll chime in with something. Oh, sorry. Feel free to go ahead, PG. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, first of all, I want to say, Emily, I'm excited to read your review of Barbie because I wrote one the day after for my Substack, and it was mostly a negative review. So I'm excited to read yours. Um, my final word is two videos I saw on Twitter the last couple of days, one of outside the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City on 46th Street, with like a horde of refugees rushing the door to the refugee asylum center, which is now the refugee, the, the Roosevelt Hotel. Um, and, um, it looked like a disaster and there's now men, all young fighting age men camping out around the Roosevelt hotel in midtown Manhattan, um, because all these, you know, immigrants or whatever are being sent to New York city. And then in Oakland here in California, <laughs> there was a town hall with all these angry outraged Oakland residents yelling at the DA, the woke DA who refuses to arrest anyone and the crime rate in Oakland as I'm sure you know is absolutely unbelievable like you you know you you wouldn't want to walk down the street in the, in the daylight um and so these blue state uh the regular people in these dark blue states in these dark blue cities Oakland and New York City are pushing back finally and they they voted for these policies they voted for these people you know these are not Trump voters these are if you live in Oakland um, and you know, you're a white liberal, you did not vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> you voted for Gavin Newsom many times over. And now they're getting what they voted for good and hard. And I'm very curious to know at what point will the, the sort of like um, quality of life issues get so bad here and in New York that liberals um, decide to switch their vote. Um, we've been waiting for that for a long time to happen, that the homelessness gets so bad that they finally switch their vote. Will they ever? Um, I hope so. My fingers are crossed. So I'll be really brief and talk about two completely divergent points. Uh, one, it's kind of amazing how little attention has been paid to all of these data points indicating uh, China's infiltration of America in incredibly disturbing and dangerous ways from secret police station in New York to now this story, which really isn't getting enough attention about essentially a Chinese bio lab out in California, which had, I think, mice who, uh, you know, might have been exposed to all manner of different diseases. And uh, this was found, it seems, by total happenstance because of essentially health inspectors going and doing a check or or actually it might have even been uh, administrators checking on like an unregistered business or something like that. So I guess in this case, kudos to the state administrative state for falling into this. But these raise the questions, of course, of how many other facilities like these exist around the United States. Where is the FBI in all this? Which, of course, under the Biden administration dropped its premier counterintelligence program, the DOJ's China initiatives, one of the things the DOJ actually should have been working on. 
Uh, remarkable story, doesn't get any attention. It seems like there are millions of those today. And it's hard to know if they're more outrageous today than there were before, or we're just more aware of them. But of course, the media's blackout itself is sort of a scandal in and of itself. And then uh, totally different since, since Josh mentioned uh, the Time Magazine story. I think that is, it's such an important piece because it was as if they were proud of what they did to quote unquote fortify the election in 2020. So it's like, if it's an open conspiracy, then they did nothing wrong. And it's also to be celebrated. That piece I think is worth looking at again, look, looked at anew. And, and all of the groups that are implicated in it, there ought to be real investigative work done on what they're doing going into 2024, how they're trying to perfect, build out and improve upon their efforts going into 2024. And to the extent Republicans and conservatives are not actually doing the work of seeing what the left is doing, working to combat it, and then coming up with their own counter plans. It guarantees losses across the board in 2024. And it also reflects the fact that it reflects the fact that Republicans and some conservatives don't know what time it is or are not serious about marshalling the resources to fight given what time it is. So uh, worth looking at and thinking about as we move ahead into the general election cycle. You know, I don't think any Republican right now is in an enviable position having to navigate the very serious concerns about the administrative state and the surveillance apparatus, uh, while also taking this message to, as Josh pointed out deftly earlier, normal people who are just trying to get by, for whom their top political priority, listen, they, if they had you know fair media coverage of what was happening at the FBI, they would be outraged, they'd be furious about it. And you know when they hear about it and, and believe that coverage, they are. Um, but they're also just trying to get by. They're also dealing with crazy levels of inflation, tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt, a crazy housing market, a crazy market for cars, horrible teaching in their kids' schools, et cetera, et cetera. And that is not an easy position for any Republican politician to be in right now uh, if they are running a campaign. I, that, I get it. It is really hard to do. Um, but I also think you know there's a lot of uh, armchair punditry uh, from you know, people like myself who say like culture war, culture war, culture war, or as Inez framed it, the the culture war is the big tent. And like that, I thought that was brilliant when Inez said it, and I still do um, I agree with it completely. But it's also you have to pitch the culture war in a way that that really makes sense to the average voter. And I feel like it's it's pretty easy to do. Just bridge the gap between uh, elite mismanagement and uh, elite mendacity when it comes to teaching kids porn, when it comes to uh, having gender training for five-year-olds, um, et cetera, et cetera. The same people that wanna do that are also the same people begging for corporate welfare and lobbying the administrative state um, for you know easy treatment and uh, overly permissive regulations and um, are, are taking private jets to environmentalist con. Uh, conferences like that's that is the same group of people and you can make the case you know you're paying so much for healthcare, you're paying so much for uh gas because these people the private jet environmentalists are also uh the people that are making you uncomfortable with your public school so i, I guess just as i've seen the republican primary evolve we're less than a month uh ahead of the debate right now that's something i've been thinking about is like it, it, that has yet to be refined um and i think you see that with campaigns, you know, trying to find their 
step, um, you know, like even Trump's campaign. So just something to think about, you know, how do you take the message of the culture war to normal people who are dealing with crazy high bills um, and, you know, schools that are, are failing, not just on woke stuff, but on actual learning standards, um, you know, setting records for how uh, ill-educated our students are poorly educated our students are maybe I just showed some of my own poor public school education there uh, but I'll toss it back to you Josh all righty well on that note on behalf of Emily Ben and Peachy I am Josh Hammer hope you enjoyed the show and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad